This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Welcome to Matt Splained. Headphones that lip read, mouse rat chimeras, soap based TV screens, and a robot with feelings. Now, with a list like that, it has to be weird science. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hey, Rich. I'm, I'm good. You know, this is a, a story that's been uh, uh, all over the news and social media the, the last couple of weeks. This is what we're starting with. So apologies to anyone who has heard it before. Uh, and I wanted to include it because as, as you might have got the idea from that introduction, um, <laughs> we have some genuinely weird stories this week. But this is actually one of those examples of a genuinely useful breakthrough technology. And mm. that's the the kind of thing that you only find once in, you know, a very rare while. And as an idea, it is incredibly simple. It's a set of smart glasses that is equipped with a heads-up display that mm-hmm. shows text. Now, there's nothing amazing in that. It's the same technology we see in heads-up displays in cars, in a lot of the existing smart glasses that are already out there on the market. Yeah. What makes it special in this case is the app that comes with the glasses. Now, you see, I think I might know where you're going with this, but last week you were arguing that it isn't the app that's important. No, but that's when we were talking about a bicycle with an app. So these are, you know, smart glasses. So the app is the bit that makes them smart. Uh, With the bicycle, it's the bicycle that Mm. makes it smart. The app just lets you hire it. So the smart part with the glasses is that they instantly translate spoken language into text. Yes. Yes. So why is that particularly useful? Well, it's really useful for people who have hearing impairments because Mm. it allows them to see the conversations they're having with people in real time. Uh, The XRA uh, glass, smart glasses are currently in a a testing mode. The company is inviting members of the public to come and join the program. In a publicity video for the product, it shows a deaf woman wearing them for the first time. And you see this incredulous reaction on her face (laughs) as she realizes that she can have a conversation with someone without having to watch as she talks to them. And you see as she gets this realization and she breaks into this enormous smile. Mm -hmm. Now, that ability is something that people who can hear just take for granted. You know, that ability to have indirect conversations, to shout to somebody in another room. If you're hearing impaired, you rely on reading the lips of that person or looking at the language they're signing when they're communicating with you. Mm. Uh, so what, what sparked this idea then? Well, uh, I saw a couple of videos with the company's founder, a guy called Dan Scarf. He shared the story of an aging relative who was losing his hearing. And when he looked around at the solutions that were available for his relative, he was a bit surprised. You know, he looked at hearing aids, all of that kind of thing. Mm. And he was surprised by the shortcomings that a lot of the technology has. And then he had that 
light bulb moment of, well, you know, we've got heads up displays and we have speech to text translation. So why don't we have smart speech to text glasses for the deaf community? Yeah, and yeah. that was it. He was off. Uh, Scarf has partnered with an AI company called Enreal to produce the glasses. They hope to reach around 70,000 hearing impaired people by the end of next year. And they've got two pricing models for the device themselves. You can buy them outright for around uh, 399 uh, UK pounds, which is about 2,200 ringgit. Now, for those on limited incomes, they're also making them available on an installment plan at around 35 pounds a month over the course of a year. So you can buy the the glasses on installments at no additional cost direct from the company. Now, something as simple as that, being flexible in the way that the company gets paid can hugely extend the reach of your product because you don't have to be a person with a disability and a person with easy access to money to benefit from this kind of breakthrough and development. Game changer. Um, just a side note for a sec. Um, are we seeing more companies in the assistive technology space adopting more uh, flexible purchasing models? Yeah, we do seem to be, and not just in terms of uh, assistive technology, but across the board. Uh, often, uh, we see, um, you know, when we when we see ads for online shopping or whatever, there are intermediary companies that pop up as you buy online and they tell you you can spread your payments across three or six mm. months. Usually, you don't see something as generous as AI, XR AI glasses model, you know, paying over a year at no additional penalty. Um, and that's really important now. You know, we're, we're in this cost of living crunch. Technology is becoming increasingly expensive. And especially when it comes to assistive devices like this, you know, we're used to health and medical technology being really expensive and either benefiting those who have access to money or seeing Mm -hmm. families make sacrifices to provide the care for that family member. So this is a reminder that devices can be priced one, they can be priced fairly, um, but where high prices can't be avoided, they can be priced flexibly and still allow the company to operate commercially. You know, in the scheme of things, 400 pounds or 2,200 ringgit for life-changing technology, it's not really a lot of money, but right. at the same time, it's a not inconsiderable sum, mm-hmm. you know, more so in a country like Malaysia where you know, incomes are a lot tighter. Yeah. Um, Is this an issue of technology becoming um, increasingly exclusionary? Yeah, I think it is. And not just in terms of price. You know, a lot of uh, new technologies rely on specific degrees of ableism. Uh, In another of the uh, XR AI glass promo clips, they show someone conversing with an Alexa device. Right. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Now, the machine's voice responses um, translate Alexa's voice into text on the glasses of the deaf user. Now, we talk a great deal about screenless devices and natural language on this show, but, you know, I take it for granted that this technology is only useful if you can hear it. Mm -hmm. So this supposedly inclusionary, less intrusive technology is automatically exclusive for, you know, hearing impaired people in the Mm -hmm. same way that a screen-filled world excludes people with vision impairments. So developments like this, 
help to level that technology gap, you know, as well as having those positive in real life uses. Yeah, it was the um, Alexa clip that I saw actually. And uh, yeah, I, I was just watching it. I'm like, however, somebody like Amazon hasn't thought of this by now is it was something that kind of went through my mind first anyway. But, um, but that's but that's kind of the point, because, you know, the, we approach it from that direction of yeah, not yeah. thinking about that other per- yeah. people. So I, I was the same as you. When I saw that clip, I was like, aha, now I get it. And once you get it, it becomes obvious. But until you get into that space, it's not something you'd ever consider. Yeah. Um, Okay. With with that in mind then, and and kind of a bit of a discussion, what are some of the other potential users? Could this be used as an instant translation device, for example? Yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of ways that you can imagine this being used, you know, all kinds of augmented reality applications. Uh, Scarf mentioned that he hoped the device would soon be available in other languages. Mm. Now, I think what he meant by that was more along the lines of non-English speaking um, devices for the, the hearing impaired. So extending it to you know people in other countries. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine it being used as an instant translator as well. You yeah. know, allowing people to have live conversations, even if they don't share a language, because we've seen a lot of instant translation devices and they tend to be speech based, which is great, but it is a little bit weird because it means everything is said twice. Mm. once in one language and once in another. And that kind of impedes the conversation. Mm. With a device like this, you have a real-time conversation in your own language and the recipient sees the text of the other person's words in that heads-up display. Uh, And of course, by expanding um, these kind of case uses for the technology, you you expand that pool of uses. Um, That could enable the company to scale and in the Mm. process, you know, reduce its costs of production reduce the costs of the device, which of course makes it more affordable for the people who actually need it, who aren't just using it as an, you know, something to help them on holiday or whatever. Yeah. Um, now, for the next story, I, I want to stay in a similar space, this assistive technology space. Um, we've just spoken about uh, conversation enhancing glasses. Now I want to talk about lip reading earphones. You do realize that sentence really makes no sense at all. (laughs) I I do. I understand. There's no sense there, but it is also true. And that's why, you know, this is weird science. Mm. This is a a device uh, developed by researchers at the University of Buffalo in the US, and it also relates to voice control devices. Um, Now, giving audible commands to a machine is, you know, by any definition, a bit weird talking to your fridge or talking to Alexa. Um, And, you know, I've found that in the middle of conversations with friends, they break off to tell Alexa to do something. And it's become another one of those weird interruptions that technology has introduced into our social lives. You know, I'd be talking to my mum and she'd say, Alexa, turn the radio down. And you'd you know, where did that come from? And it's become this kind of third spoke in the wheel of our conversations. So the uh, the Buffalo earphones. Wait, b- Buffalo earphones? Uh, sorry, the earphones developed at Buffalo University, not <laughs> headphones for Buffalo or worse, headphones made of Buffalo, although you know, meat-based phones. There might be a market for that. Marilyn Manson or Lady Gaga fans. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, as I said, this is a set of earbuds 
that read your lips. Now, this isn't something that they do with weird camera trickery. It turns out that our facial muscles change the shape of the ear canal as we speak, and AI-equipped headphones can read those changes in shape and match them to the words that we're mouthing. Now, mm-hmm. why would you want to wear headphones that uh, can read your lips? You might be wondering. Yeah. It's that same voice technology we were talking about. You know, it's bad enough the way we interrupt conversations. It's even odder when you're lo- walking along the street and talking to this invisible machine. You know, talking to yourself in public is still something that's seen as a little bit out there. And mm-hmm. you can take that from somebody who frequently does it. But with um, Buffalo's ear command system, you can operate your Alexa or Google Home device simply by silently mouthing the commands. Um, How extensive then is this recognition system? I'm just thinking about the weirdness of that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. You've got something in your ears that's reading what you're saying and is activating another device. It is... You know, in the same way that the last story was that aha moment, this is the opposite of the aha moment. This is that. Why would anyone even figure that out? Ah, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, like like any AI-based system, um, of course, this is only as good as the data that's being fed into it. So far, the team has it recognizing uh, 32, I think, single word commands, you know, like TikTok, Instagram so that you can open those apps and around 25 simple sentences. It currently makes mistake around 10% of the time, and that's about double the rate of uh, most of the current commercial voice recognition systems. Mm. Now, the team hopes to bring that down to the market average uh, as the neural net trains and to, to expand the usable vocabulary of the device. Um, there is also likely to be a learning curve for users. The device itself has to to tune itself to their particular speech patterns, their voice. So there's that process of dialing it in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it's a long way from being a market-ready product. But it's another interesting concept that, you know, I'd, I'd love to see this being made available, at least until, you know, we get those chips where Alexa can be beamed straight into our brains. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, imagine Siri and Alexa having an argument in your head over the relative merits of Google and Bing. Fascinating. Yeah, it, it, no doubt. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay. So clearly we've, we've, we're definitely on a weird, a weird one this week. Definitely. Um so what else do you want to leave us with before we take a break? Does it get weirder? Rat sperm. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> uh, last year, Swiss researchers were uh, able to grow mouse sperm cells inside sterile rats. So, sorry, I'm just sorry I asked that question now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, this year, they decided to try to create the reverse, which is rat sperm cells inside sterile mice. I did say it was a very weird, weird science yes. episode. Yeah. Um, now, I know the question is, why would anyone want to do such an unpleasant sounding thing? Well, mm-hmm. this is an attempt to create chimeras. Um, these are organisms that contain cells from different individuals, uh, as the new scientist where I got this story so pleasantly puts it. Um, pluripotent stem cells, or PSCs, are taken from one animal and injected into what's called a blastocyst. Now, this is an embryo that consists of around 60 cells. 
Now, if that blastocyst is genetically modified to lack specific genes, then the pluripotent stem cells from the donor animal will take their place. In this case, the blastocyst lacked the genes for mice to produce sperm. Instead, they started to produce rat-compatible sperm from the blastocyst instead, based on the PSCs that the cells contained. Wait, so does that mean then that they were able to fertilize rat eggs? Yeah, but not with the same level of effectiveness. Now, <sighs> before before you get weird mental images, that doesn't mean mating rats with mice. Um, these are all laboratory tests. So they're taking the sperm and they're taking the, the eggs and, and fertilizing outside the body. Uh, uh -huh. The fertilized eggs always failed. So there's clearly a lot more to do. Uh, and that brings us back to that question of why we want to create these chimeras in the first place. Mm. Well, firstly, you might want to uh, introduce human DNA into lab rats and mice for medical testing, drug development, that kind of thing. And there's also, um, again, we're going into the weird space, um, there's the possibility of recreating extinct species. You and we know how that story ends, though, Matt. Well, I was going to say, you know, you could potentially use the same process to create, um, you know, different kinds of germ cells. So you can create sperm and you can create eggs from extinct species if you have viable DNA samples. It could also be used to boost the uh, survival hopes of endangered species. So you could start new populations by, you know, kind of engineering new members of the species. And as you alluded to, I'm looking forward to the rat-based Jurassic Park of tomorrow. Yeah. And on that horrifying note, uh, we, we, I need to take a break. I don't know about you guys at home and hope there's nothing like this to follow. Uh, of course, you are tuned in to Matt Splained here on BFM. We'll be right back after these messages here on BFM 89.9. Films, man. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back, I, I think, to uh, Matt's plane this week. Um, we've had some assistive devices on today's show, as well as something I, I hope to never have to think about or speak about again. Matt. Yeah, no, I gave myself quite a stern talking to uh, during the break. Um, unfortunately, I won or lost. I don't know which, but um, <laughs> whatever the case, it's unlikely anything's going to change. I will try and keep it clean, though, um, and I'll kick off this half with a story about soap molecules. Oh, well done. Nice. Exactly. What could be cleaner than that? Um, yeah. Scientists have been looking at uh, alternative methods to manufacture silicon-based LEDs for many years. I know that doesn't sound like it has anything to do with soap, but stay with me. Um, they're looking for LEDs that are easier to manufacture, that are less energy intensive in their production. And of course, they want to uh, boost performance upgrades to the devices themselves. You know, better, cheaper displays and devices. That's something all of us want. Mm -hmm. And the most promising alternative has long seemed to be a material called perovskite, which is a, a crystal comprised of titanium and calcium. Now, um, 
Folks, you can't see the screen that I'm seeing here, but I'm, I'm sat staring at Matt as we're recording this, and he had a smirk on his face, so I'm a little bit worried about where this is going to go. But um, I'm not sure. There are many people who use titanium soap, Matt. Superheroes, maybe? I don't know. No, I'll get there. It's not the perovskite that's found in soap. Um, as mm. I said, you know, this is a, a material that's had promise for many years, but scientists have struggled to make diodes created with it stable. Mm. As a result, any LEDs that are made with the material, even in the best case scenarios, would only last for a few hundred hours, which is, you know, orders of magnitude less than the average silicon-based LED, which is, you know, in excess of uh, 10,000 hours. However, researchers at uh, Zayang University in China have created a prototype that does last in excess of 10,000 hours which puts it in the same ballpark as their silicon as the silicon based LEDs and this mm -hmm. is where the soap comes in the researchers added a detergent molecule called uh, sulfobetaine 10 to the diode uh, according to the new scientists again a new scientist story the molecule acts as a stabilizer it attracts the positive and negative ions that would otherwise be moving freely within the crystal um, and it's that movement that creates this instability and shortens the effective life of the device. Adding this soap stabilizer boosted the diode from those hundreds of hours to more than 10,000. So when do you think uh, soap-based screens will be hitting the market then, Matt? Yeah, that's why I was smirking, because I knew I had to get you to say soap-based screens. Uh, the team has only tested them with infrared diodes at the moment, though uh, there isn't any theoretical reason why they shouldn't work for LEDs in the visible light spectrum. Uh, the team does caution that it may be more difficult to produce blue light diodes with this process, but green and red should be possible. Mm -hmm. Now, I should have taken the time to figure out why making them into blue diodes is harder, but you know, I can't do everything. Um, so you just have to research that bit yourself. But um, in any case, you know, we may have to wait a while for clean screens to hit the market. Um, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if the detergent molecule made the screens self-cleaning as well? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, I know that's not how chemistry works, but... Um, you know, it would be very cool. Um, other researchers are saying how promising the concept looks. So clean screens may be a thing in the none-too-distant future. Um, mm. What should we look at now? Um, well, part two is normally when we head off into, uh, you know, that, that frightening world of uh, stuff like AI and, yeah. Okay. Um, well, uh, AI, yes, not so frightening with this first story. Uh, one of the great successes of the battle against COVID was, of course, the rapid development and production of home test kits. Yeah. Again, um, as we were saying before the break, pricing was crucial, making them affordable enough, uh, in most countries at least, that people could use them as a matter of routine. Now, when you consider what a lot of medical tests involve in terms of time, discomfort, cost, you wonder why we don't have a lot more reliable at-home type testing solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, a biotech company called Viome in the US is trying to address this issue. They recently started retailing a home testing kit for oral and throat cancers. Now, this is more like those DNA type test kits rather than the COVID tests. You purchase the kit and then you send the sample back to Viome 
and they give you the results in around two weeks. And it turns out that the kit may actually be more accurate than tests that are typically done by specialists in hospitals. Oh, that is interesting. Um, and do you think that might be because uh, oral cancers are uh, difficult to detect? Well, yeah. So doctors typically rely on visual inspections to spot mm. the signs of oral cancers. And these are cancers where survival rates are really good. You know, the percentages are pretty high, but only when they're detected early. So mm. those visual inspections, of course, can be subjective because the lesions or the other indicators have to have grown to a certain size before a doctor can spot them. So Viam wanted to find a uh, a more reliable and earlier method of testing. So they looked at changes in the microbiome. You might have guessed that from the name Viome. Uh, so they looked for changes in the microbiome of the mouth that might serve as indicators. Uh, they used a, a sample data set of around a thousand genetic samples. 90% of those uh, roughly were cancer-free. Uh, around 8% of the samples were from people with oral cancers and a further 1.2% from people with throat cancers. So they plugged all this information into a machine learning tool and the tool identified 88 changes or markers that signified the presence of cancerous cells in the tested material. And they performed those tests with an accuracy rate of in excess of 90%. Um is that a game changer then in, in terms of uh, diagnosis and detection? Again, you know, those figures look really good. So, of course, you have to approach with some degree of caution. Uh, the mm. company is currently pursuing FDA approval in the US. Now, gaining that would enable the product to be more widely available, um, you know, in pharmacies, that kind of thing, and to be covered by health insurance. At the moment, you can only buy online at their website. Now, some oral cancer specialists have made the point that the test itself isn't definitive. It tests for markers, not for the cancer itself. Right, so right. a negative test doesn't mean that you're in the clear. In the mm. same way, a, po the, a positive test isn't a definite diagnosis either. In either instance, if you are someone who's at risk of these diseases or suspect that you might have it, then you still need to see a health professional where a biopsy material can be taken if required. Mm -hmm. uh, for its part, the company claims that the tests will become more accurate as the number of people using it increases because uh, the neural net will continue to learn and to refine its results. So Certainly overall, it's a welcome addition, but it's not a replacement for, you know, those specialists and healthcare professionals, right, but it yeah. would certainly be useful, you know, from a consumer perspective to see either at home or easy testing for a much wider range of health conditions. So for sure, for hopefully sure. it's a step in that direction. Now, yeah. I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, okay. How do you like your fingers? Um, well, I, I'm rather attached to them, you weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I mean, it's not, it's not a question that really has an answer. Um, but again, it's, it's another one of those things that we take for granted. You know, when we use our hands, we get sensory feedback from yeah. our fingertips. You know, it tells us, is the cup hot? Is the surface smooth? And often we can determine what an object is made of just by touching it. So uh, a few weeks ago, I spoke to Frida about a robot that was able to figure out its own position in the world and to plan its movements accordingly. Now, 
while that's a great step towards flexible and semi-autonomous machines, even with the battery of uh, sensors that we currently have, you know, things that tell them how hard they're gripping an object, that, that kind of thing, machines have lacked what we could define or call a sense of touch right. until, of course, now that is. Uh, a team at the Beijing Institute of Nano Energy and Nanosystems, which is possibly one of the most uh, accurately named institutes I've ever heard, <laughs> has uh, created a, a robot finger that can identify what an object is made from, as well as what its surface texture is like. It can tell if a surface is rough or smooth, or if corners are jagged, you know, that kind of thing. Huh. And it's, yeah, and it's been tested on a variety of materials ranging from silicon to plastic to wood, and detects them with an accuracy rate of almost 97%. Uh, the finger uses a clever array of four sensors. The sensors are made from polymer that have different electrical properties. So when it puts the finger near an object, electrons from each sensor interact with the surface of the object in a different way. And once again, this is fed back into a machine learning tool. So those measurements can then be translated into kind of the machine equivalent of what we would call sensory data. Let me guess, massage robots. Well, I don't think anyone would want that um, for lots and lots of reasons. And I did promise to keep this half of the show on, you know, the up and up. Um, so their primary application is likely to be for quality control. So fingers or hands, robot fingers or hands equipped with the sensors would be able to tell if an object has been finished correctly. They could also be used for grading and sorting the raw materials for production as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the research team has also pointed out the potential usefulness in artificial limbs, uh, but other researchers have pointed out that we don't necessarily need that functionality in artificial limbs because we still have other senses to rely on. So that assistance might be limited. But yeah, mm. um, robot hands that know what you feel like might be on their way. Right. Um, so I guess uh, how are we going to wrap up then today? What, what, what have we got left? With some fun news about WhatsApp. Oh, great. What okay. could possibly be more delightful. <laughs> um, so the service is due to launch a raft of new functions in updates to the app over the next few weeks. One of the key ones is the ability to ghost yourself from group chats without sending out one of those horrible Elvis has left the building notifications to everyone that you've uh, oh. decided to no longer be associated with. And you know, we've all been there. You're happily chatting to a group of old school friends, and then a couple of them decide to hijack the group with posts for Miracle Cure Horse Dewormer, for <laughs> Magic Crystals. And then when you leave, everyone reacts as though you're the one who's got issues. So in the next update, you'll have the option to silently leave these groups so Elvis can tiptoe out of the building and disown his former friends without <laughs> any of the confrontation. Uh, other updates will see the adoption of functionality that we've previously seen in Snap. Now, you can already send destructive images and pictures over WhatsApp, and I don't mean in the emotionally weaponized sense, although I suppose with WhatsApp you've always been able to do that. I mean messages that self-destruct once the user has seen them. Now, this mm -hmm. is something that 
WhatsApp also borrowed from Snap. Now you'll have the option to disable screenshotting of those destructive images. Now that doesn't necessarily stop someone taking a photo of the screen and capturing an image that way, but it is another layer of security for the individual. And I'll yeah, point yeah. you to the uh, Netflix documentary, The Most Hated Man on the Internet, for follow-ups on that one. Oh, yes. Uh, I did watch that. Mm. Now, um, anything else in there then in this uh, update? Yeah, there is. Uh, You'll get more granular control over one of my favorite WhatsApp spying features. Uh, That uh, person is online message that it shows. um, It tells you uh, when they last looked at their messages as well. I mean, we've all done it. We've sent a message. The recipient doesn't respond until much, much later and tells you, oh, no, they didn't see your message, (laughs) but you saw the blue ticks and the notification that the person was online and using WhatsApp. Haven't seen it. Yeah, right. Well, now the app will have the ability to stop annoying people like me from identifying your lies. Uh, You'll be able to choose who can see your current status on the app and whom it's hidden from. I can't remember if I've got that feature turned on or off at the moment. Uh, Hang on, you've got it turned on. Right, I've got to turn that off. Um, Now, I know this might not be weird, but I certainly am, and I guess blocking me from spying on you counts as weird science. Brilliant. Thanks so much for that, Matt. (laughs) My pleasure. Right then, um, if you want missed any part of this show and uh, you want to listen back to it, remember you can listen back to it at your leisure, wherever you normally listen to it from. We suggest using a BFM app. It's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. And as ever, if you want more information about Matt or Culture Pop or anything about this show, subscribe to his Substack newsletter. It's over at culturepop.substack.com. This has been Matt Splain here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.